Hello, friends, and welcome to Happy Sad Talk Thing. Um, today, I have a pretty remarkable episode to share with you guys. Um, this is a conversation I had with uh, David St. John, who um, is a professor of mine at USC. Um, he's a lot more than that. Uh, he's an incredible human being, first and foremost. Um, but he's an American poet and uh, an incredibly ac accomplished one at that Um and uh, I took this really awesome class from him where it paired like creative writing majors <coughs> with songwriting majors and uh, we just worked on poetry, you know, and um, just sort of comparing and contrasting the, the two crafts um, and learning from each other, you know. And uh, it was a pretty mind-blowing time of my life. It was uh, first semester this, this last uh, year, which was my sophomore year. And um, it was the first time <coughs> that I um, thought about poetry by itself, really, you know, because most of the most of the words that I've fallen in love with have been in the context of songs, you know, and um, it was just really challenging and um, but really awesome just to get my hands dirty um, and just you know focus on poetry and and reading my friends' poetry and making new friends and reading their poetry and, and listening to David speak and having conversations with David about, um, you know, just <laughs> life and, and humanity and, and self and poetry. And, uh, yeah, it was just uh, it was a very influential time, very inspirational time. He very uh, fiercely believes in... Uh, young artists and it's really <laughs> he's an inspiring guy to know um, and he also uh, teaches this class with um, some master students there's some like composition students that work with graduate level poetry students that also work with uh, graduate vocalists and so they all uh, collaborate and work on pieces together and uh, there was a really interesting day where um, the songwriting class like went in there and we sang our songs for them and they performed their pieces for us, you know? And uh, it was just a really cool... Um, so he sits on the fence of, you know, of a lot of awesome things, you know? And, and uh, because, that, like, we don't know, what, what, what I do as a folk songwriter <laughs> is definitely looked down upon in the eyes of many and definitely in, in the eyes of academic art music. It, uh, it just very easily could be written off as lowbrow or something and, uh, you know, dumb. And um, it's just cool that it isn't sometimes, you know, and uh, definitely at USC it's, it's definitely regarded... Uh, with a lot of respect, and uh, David is definitely a huge proponent of that and a huge reason that that kind of cross-conversation exists. And it was so beautiful because, <clears throat> you know, th they were fascinated by what we were doing, and we were fascinated by what they were doing, <laughs> you know? And we were able to kind of, like, talk about, you know, what we do and learn from each other as opposed to, like, you know, us stick our noses up at them and as them stick our noses up at us, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, this is a fantastic conversation that I had with David. Um, and I really just tried to get out of his way and just let the man, you know, let the man preach because uh, 
he's just so in- incredibly insightful and uh humble and connected you know and um just a very uh pivotal figure in my life you know <laughs> just for me like giving having someone to give me permission to love words as much as this man loves words and loves life and is just genuinely curious about people you know and um I mean, we would talk about Kills records, you know, <laughs> and stuff like that, where I'm like, damn, this guy is, is one of the coolest people that I've ever met. And um, yeah, and he was he was kind enough to sit down and do this podcast and uh, just sort of talk about life and poetry and um, yeah, being a person. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm pretty quiet in this interview. Um and uh, I, I, uh, there are a few moments where I'm, I'm a little overwhelmed and, uh, <laughs> I'm on the verge of tears and I, uh, make a joke or something like that to try to avoid that feeling. Cause just being in the presence of this dude, I mean, he's just so, uh, aware and, um, it's just really great, you know, all the things that he's doing. So, um, you know, and he's been writing poetry since, you know, 60s and 70s and still writes and is still that hungry, you know, and that humble to look around and, and be inspired by things. Um, yeah, and he's just, he's a wealth of uh, knowledge and information and uh, I just have the utmost respect um, <laughs> for him. And I just, I don't know, it warms my heart to see uh that you can go through life like that you know that you can that you can stay open forever and always be asking you know what more can i do how can i grow you know and just to to see and know people like that um it's just fucking cool (laughs) so yeah um i hope you guys are doing well and uh here's my conversation with with david st john Okay, we're doing it. Great, I'm ready. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well, actually. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. I'm still trying to transition into summer. Right. And uh, it's, you know, it's been slower than I'd like, but I'm, I'm working on it. Yeah. Are you a summer person, like, traditionally? Or? Yeah, I like summer. I yeah. mean, I, I often do a lot of my own work during the summer. Mm-hmm. And it's been sort of a, a pattern, sort of a habit from the time I began teaching. Right. And because during the sort of normal school year, there's a lot of things that uh, that sort of occupy me, yeah. but then I start usually start working on my own work seriously in the spring, and then I carry over into summer. Mm-hmm. In in recent years, it's it's been interesting to me because I've been able to work sort of all year long, and that's felt 
really terrific because I like mm -hmm. that kind of continuity. I like being able to build on what I'm reading, build on what I'm teaching. Often I'll make discoveries during uh, a class about something that I want to do in my own work. Yeah. And it's, uh, I'll be teaching a particular poet, teaching a particular poem, and suddenly I'll realize, oh, wait, that's sort of like the thing that I was thinking about in this particular poem I'm working on. And right. I don't want to do this, but I think now I know what I want to do instead. So I, I like that. I like the way in which the things I'm doing, teaching, but it's the same with just my reading in general. Or even just, you know, going to a show, hearing music, going to, you know, seeing dance, seeing a film. I mean, I try to let those things enter my experience in a way that I really can make use of. There's, yeah. you know, there's also times when I really go after stuff. Like, there are particular right. artists that I really love, including a lot of filmmakers, people like, uh, you know, Michelangelo Antonioni, for example, the Italian filmmaker. <coughs> but, uh, or uh, Bertolucci, he was a really important filmmaker for me. Yeah. What's interesting is that my poems and my own work, they really show influences not just from other poets, but also from other parts of the artistic world. And yeah. film, music, uh, obviously always music, but I like, I guess I like that sense that all of art is a conversation. Right. And what I do, I write poems, but it doesn't mean that I don't want to write little movies, and I yeah. don't want to write you know, songs that are songs for the page. And, you know, I mean, you've heard me talk about that Jackson Brown line. Yeah. And I was thinking about that the other day, about how... Would you mind just telling that story real quick for the sure. podcast? Yeah. So one of the things that Jackson Brown and I were doing a one-on-one -on -one interview for uh, Interview Magazine. This is, you know, maybe 10 years ago, more now. And I was saying to him, you know, Jackson, everyone talks about you as being an amazing poet in your lyrics and <clears throat> he said but I'm not a poet he said I'm a songwriter and he said the difference is when I write lyrics in the songs I always have the music to be able to bring forward what I want to say in a way that can convey a particular power and a particular nuance and he said, a poet, what a poet has to do is put the music inside the words, inside the language. And I always thought that that was the most brilliant distinction between writing poems and songwriting. So what I've been thinking about more and more is the way in which I can get a variety of kinds of music and rhythms yeah. to really work within particular passages and particular mm -hmm. phrases. 
So a lot of my poems in the last couple of years have been what we'd call voice-driven. They're really coming from a particular speaker who is speaking in a particular way that's really proper to that person's voice. And it's really fun. And so I like how uh, dramatic it becomes and how much these poems have become little vignettes and little stories. So yeah. that's, that's been a great thing to see. And now that that section of new poems for a book that's coming out of new and selected poems, now that that's done, I'm able to look back at it and really think about what was at work while I was doing it. I don't like to think too much about um, the sort of aesthetics of what I'm doing when I'm in the middle of it. I just want to uh, I want to do it. I know what pressures in the language I want to respond to. I know what kinds of rhythms. I know what kinds of attitudes of voice I want. But I don't want to think too uh, critically or outside, you know, objectively about it until later. And then I can go back and look and, and think, oh, well, that's cool. I was doing this or I was doing that. And, but when I'm in the soup, I just want to swim in the soup of it. Love that in the soup. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Could you talk maybe a little more specifically about how other forms of art and different mediums influence what you do? Yeah. Um, you know, the in the visual arts, I've always spent a lot of time around visual artists, uh, yeah. especially painters, some printmakers as well. But I've known a lot of painters, and the poets, American poets of the generation of, say, the poets John Ashbery and Frank O'Hara were very close to and very involved with the New York art world. Yeah. And I've always been fascinated by different movements in the visual arts and painting, uh, not just American painting. But for me, uh, I found an amazing artist who underwent this huge transformation of a, a painter who was called an abstract expressionist named Philip Guston. And he was incredibly well-known, you know, represented uh, in museums everywhere. And somewhat late in his life, he abandoned the abstract expressionist style that he'd become famous for and began doing extremely playful and gestural uh, pieces that, canvases that had, you know, pipes in them and big shoes and little tiny figures in, in um, these sort of triangular figures in white robes that were, uh, it was very cartoonish. And it could not have been in some ways more different than the kind of uh, large, abstract, huge canvases that he had become known for. Right. What interested me was that I saw a show then at a museum in San Francisco that included his very early work. 
And in that very early work, you could see actually some of the roots of what the late work became. Yeah. So it, it, it did have a kind of arc that one didn't see at first. But most important to me was that I watched this documentary about this shift in Guston's work right at a time when uh, I wanted to do something really different. I'd written two books of poems. I was in my mid-30s. I uh, you know, had, had more success as a poet than I ever thought I'd had already, would have already. But I wanted to try to do something uh, really different. And it's always a question, you know, do you do the thing that you've been praised for? Do you do the thing that apparently you can do pretty well? Or do you start to look for some other way to do things? <clears throat> and so I just decided I would try to do something that I didn't know how to do and had never done. And I mean, I didn't know what that thing was. Mm -hmm. And so with, uh, after seeing the Gustin documentary, I thought, well, you know, he, he sure had a lot more to lose than I have to lose, so I'm just going to go for it and see what happens. Yeah. And so when I was working on uh, the third book of poems, I realized I wanted them to be a lot rougher. I wanted them to be a little less beautiful. I wanted mm. the third book to be uh, somewhat ragged. And the poems became very aggressive in their line breaks, so that they suddenly would make a turn, and the line would break, and yeah. it would go somewhere else. And they're almost all vignettes. And there are vignettes that had to do with people living somewhat at the edges of their own lives. And it became a book called No Heaven. And it was really a wonderful release for me because I suddenly was able to work in a way that I felt I'd pushed myself. And I'd pushed myself someplace that I didn't even know where I'd end up. And after having that experience, I felt a lot more confident in myself as a writer. The reason being, it wasn't just that you know, I could do this thing and I could write these kinds of poems or write you know, poems that had this, a particular kind of lyricism to them, but I sort of t taught myself in trying to discover stylistically something very different, that I had a lot more voices, plural, in me than I knew I had. Yeah. It's fascinating. Well, I think, you know, if there's any moral to that long story, it's that you just, you know, you just can never really be satisfied. I mean, you just have to, uh, you know, you, you have to find the next thing. And yeah. the next thing maybe something you don't know yet. And so I I actually, it's interesting to me, Mackin, because I've discovered that in between the books that I publish with sort of the larger publishers, 
I have written maybe for over a year, year and a half, I'm writing my way toward the next thing. And so I always end up with a book's worth of poems that I publish later as like a limited edition book or a chapbook. Yeah. But the bigger, more significant books, if one can say that, um, I don't, I don't know right away. I have to spend a year, year and a half, writing myself toward that next thing before I recognize it, before I understand even myself what that next thing is. I, you know, I can say, well, I want a little bit of this, or I want something like that. Yeah. But, but I don't. You know, I. For me, it's all about discovering what that next thing is. Right. If I if I knew what the next thing was, instantly and automatically, then it wouldn't be as much fun. Yeah, and it would be a little perverted and strange to be like, oh, "This is exactly what this is going to be, and now I'm going to do it." You know? I wouldn't trust it. Yeah, those you things know? never really work out <laughs> the no. way you want them to. I mean, I've had those moments, and I've written those poems, and I go, well, that was great, but that was just an exercise. You know? <laughs> I mean, I knew it was going to end before I started, and mm. so what? You yeah. Know? yeah. So I think that as a principle for art, I think discovery is always the best policy. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I, and I think that, I mean, certainly my favorite artists are always... Uh, trying to keep themselves in those situations of, of being inspired, you know? And right. I was looking at something on my phone, I think Paul Simon's playing the Hollywood Bowl tonight. Mm-hmm. I think he's a perfect example of someone who's never satisfied and <laughs> doesn't know what the next thing is, but I'm just going to go to South Africa and figure something out. It's been amazing to hear him talk about this new work and this new album and hmm. how this, you, what you described has really been his model for a long time. Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, it, it takes a certain, one could say, oh, yeah, but, you know, look how successful you can, you know, it's, n- I mean, I think that success is often really l- limiting. And I think to see yeah. somebody just risk falling on their face is <laughs> the most gorgeous thing ever. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that I agree with you. You know, success yeah. is definitely limiting in a lot of ways. And that's, you know, demonstrated for me in a lot of like really you know rock bands that as they get popular they become uninspired and they're it reflects in their songs and and the records sound a lot shinier and yeah. more expensive but they're much worse songs so I, 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 I it's a di- I think it's a dilemma that you know I think musicians in particular have to be aware of because the you know there's also a market involved and commerce yeah. is involved and other people are involved who are really interested in you doing what has been successful or right. taking the talent you have and making sure it is quote successful which often means reproducing something that's been successful and so yeah. I, th- I think it's a struggle how are you dealing with that struggle oh well i haven't had <laughs> like any success <laughs> yeah but you you know that there's certain songs of yours that people like more than other songs yeah so um, how do you keep from not just repeating those songs? Oh, man. Uh, I think having, like, a here at school, it's really nice to have a safe place to fail, which is great. Yeah. Um, but I think it's just, maybe it's like I'm egotistical or something, or, <laughs> like, I just, I never want to be known as, like, oh, that guy that has that one gimmick or something, you know? Yeah. And, um, 
Yeah, I just um, it's it's cool to have yeah a place to try and fail here, you know. And as soon as I kind of fall into one thing, I I don't know. I guess I'm still figuring it out. Like I mm-hmm. I have a lot of songs that like I wrote a song uh, called Styrofoam a while ago with my rock band, and uh, it has some like talky parts to it where mm-hmm. I like talk you know in, in the middle of as, as opposed to singing and then for a while I was like oh the talk sing guy you know and then I, I had this one song that like people would laugh a lot like and I right. and I because I, I you know I have a lot of humor in my writing and, yeah. Um, yeah I just remember being frustrated when people would sort of be like oh he's that guy <laughs> And always wanting to, like, ah, yeah. I want to see if I can do more than that. And I would always be insanely jealous to see my friends, like, like Jack DeMeo is a songwriter in my grade, and he's, like, I mean, I, I would, uh, you know, have all these tricks and gimmicks and say something really shocking or something and, and sort of get noticed for that, and then he would just go up there and just sing, like, a very simple, very perfect song. and um, So I think it's a combination of, like... <laughs> Being jealous of my friends. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, this is not a very good answer, but no, no, it's a great answer because we're one of the ways that we grow is that we're jealous not just of <laughs> our friends and our contemporaries and the people doing work around us, um, and you know, it's it's a jealousy that's also uh, filled with awe and admiration. Yeah. And so you want to, you go, well hell I want to do that I want to do that kind of thing whatever that is yeah and it's also good to feel that way about the writers who aren't just your friends and people around you but the writers who are publishing who are quote well-known writers right and you know you want to be able to read somebody and go or listen to a song and go well I you know I want to do that but yeah. I want to do it I want to do it my way exactly yeah. and I think staying into things and being like yeah. when like Courtney Barnett had an album that came out last summer mm-hmm. and it blew my mind and yeah. I was like I you know I, I gotta do this <laughs> you know and 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 just being because as like just being the type of artist where you want your art to reflect your own humanity and your humanity is changing all the time and it's incredibly nuanced you know and and so if you're getting known for one thing and, and if your art becomes static then you might be becoming static as a person and that um, I mean and that might be something that you want but for me like you know if I want to move forward as a person I also want to move forward as an artist and those two things should like reflect each other absolutely and I think that's the value of having you know it's really something that um, I really believe is that the friends that you make sort of along the way it's they're really important and Mm. What I see in the graduate program and the students who are somewhat older, who really have become, they're publishing, they're publishing books, they're really, you know, highly accomplished, that they rely on those friendships that they've built often from the time they were 18 or 19. And the Mm. reason is they know those are the friends, those are the voices that they can trust, that nobody's going to suck up to them, nobody's going to tell them something's terrific if it's not. 
And it's that kind of candor that we really need. I mean, I have friends who've been reading my work, you know, forever. And I count on them and they count on me to just call bullshit, you know? Yeah. And it's really something that is, I find invaluable. And I have a couple of friends who, when I'm putting a book together, uh, and these friends have done the same with me, we'll, we'll show each other everything, and sometimes sort of poem by poem while we're doing it. Yeah. And what it means is that, you know, somebody can say, you know, I love this poem, and I love this passage here, but, you know, you did this passage here in the poem X, you know, five years ago. Oh. And you go, oh, shit, they're right. You yeah. know, and this is like, you know, and so you say, you know, sometimes you don't it's not that you don't remember it's that uh, you just go back to a certain place in your own sort of right. you know, artistic realm and you do sometimes things that are too familiar so you need friends to say you yeah. know what don't do that yeah do you, I feel like um, with me personally like those friends are incredibly invaluable and, and as I'm growing up and you know, my, my audience is slowly shifting, you know, and it used to yes. be my parents and my relatives, yeah. and now it's like my friends at school, and it, it, at one time it was my friends at high school, and now it's my friends at college, and, yeah. and so I'm in this awkward spot right now where it's like, my parents are, <laughs> and my, you know, family members are kind of liking my songs less and less, <laughs> you know, yeah. but my peers are liking my songs more and more, Yeah. and yeah. so I'm, I'm at this weird point where when I want to share things with certain people because I've invited that criticism from everyone you know and it's weird now because you know as my parents are liking my songs less and less they'll be like you know they'll have their notes you know yeah. and I'm I'm trying to accept like okay maybe my parents aren't my audience necessarily anymore and that's like a hard thing to <laughs> swallow you know it, it is a hard thing and it's an it's also an inevitable thing yeah and it doesn't mean, uh, I, I'll just tell you, I mean, in my experience is those things tend to come around full circle. It's the weirdest thing. And yeah. it's like, you know, either family, old friends, you know, people who loved what you did yeah. in period X. And then, you know, period Y, there's like, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe you should like, you know, try a different brand of vodka or something. You know? <laughs> and then you go to, you know, period Z, and you, you, then you're losing somebody else. But yeah. then you sort of come back around to, you know, period A in, in whatever you're doing. And, um, the th and then sort of everybody has reconciled something. I mean, I think you can never mm -hmm. listen to the specifics. I think you can listen to maybe, uh, you. I mean, I think you will hear the thing, the one thing in the choir that maybe is useful to you. Right. But you, you know, the longer you do what you do, the more you will become, for other people's criticism, a kind of moving target. Right. And that's a good thing because mm -hmm. you need to stay out in front of other people's ideas of you and what you do. Yeah. That's incredibly difficult <laughs> to do. 
Yeah, everybody's got grappling hooks they're throwing at you <laughs> to pull you back to goodness. Yeah, yeah so. and, I, and I think that exists personally too, you know. And this is kind of <laughs> <laughs> you think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and this is the first period of my life where I'm, I'm starting to uh, challenge some of those ideas that people have of me that have been telling yeah. me my whole life because yeah. I tend to sort of default to other people's opinions of me, and yeah. it's scary sometimes to be like I think you might be wrong I think yeah. I might actually know who I am more so yeah. than all of you or something and it might be a perspective issue and you know they're they're right in the terms of when they used to know you yeah. but they're no longer right in the terms of who you are now oh man you're laying down the truth right now <laughs> and they don't you know they don't really uh, know they're wrong yeah. Because they don't, uh, they, you know, they have no way to really know who you are right now, yeah. and it's you know they they you know our families mean well, our friends mean well, yeah, but sometimes we're just not in the place uh, where they knew us, and so it's a hard thing because um, it's also why sometimes certain friendships end. And it's sad, but certain friendships um, can't move to a different place. Some friendships, it's no problem. Some friendships are very malleable, and people are open. And yeah. some are, some people, uh, their friendships that are really predicated on a very rigid structure, mm. and their sense of the other thing that happens, Mackin, is that. Sometimes their sense of themselves depends on something in you that is no longer you. Yeah. And if they feel that somehow the mirror has been altered, it scares the shit out of them. Right. And so just, you know, be aware that sometimes, you know, all, every friendship has these passages of change. And yeah. Uh, the ones that last last for a reason because those people you know whether you know male female friendships doesn't matter it's always those people who are willing to sort of relax and go to the next place yeah I think it's hard for me right now um, trying to manage those expectations of who should understand me and how much they should understand me and, <laughs> and just try to appreciate any kind of love that's happening regardless of yeah. the understanding you know yeah I think understanding uh, takes a remarkably long time I yeah. think that we <laughs> underestimate that <laughs> and I think that it also requires a kind of investment on both sides and too often one side or the other just um, you know figures well I, I don't have that kind of and I think that, uh, you know, it, it really is so much about temperament and where any certain person is in their own sort of experience and cycle and whether they're in a hurry, whether they're uh, ready to sort of take a deep breath and think about what a friendship means. I mean, I, friendship isn't an easy thing. Yeah. Man, it's 
so astonishing and, and beautiful to me to see how um, just open and tuned in that you are, you know, and, and you're working on, on new poetry and you're remaining in this like vulnerable, open mm -hmm. state. And that is difficult and, I'm sh you know, takes effort. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm wondering, um, like over your career, has it been hard to maintain and is that like an active choice that you've had to pursue? Yeah, it, I mean, it really is an active choice. I think people make, and it's not a choice you make only once. It's a choice that one needs to continue to be making uh, all the time. And yeah. because if you look around at your culture and your circumstances and the demands that are around you, um, basically, this is a society that really works on reducing people to their lowest common denominator. And complexity isn't valued. Um, the kinds of nuances that we look for in songs and poems and, and art and movies and dance and music, uh, classical music. I mean, the kinds of nuance people really do love and respond to, and yet it's sometimes difficult for them to bring that into their own daily experience. That it's much easier to uh, be two-dimensional in one's life. I mean, something's right or something's wrong and it makes things, uh, you know, it's much more convenient. But it's it very, of course, I think very unhealthy. And it's like, you know, it's our families are neither right nor wrong when they don't see us or they misunderstand us. It's just that we have to remember that there are really multiple perspectives and multiple understandings. I'm not say that I'm not trying to say that uh, everything is relative because I don't believe that. I believe that ethically, some things are truly more important and right than other things. But I think that in dealing with other people, you have to be open to uh, what has been uh, wounded in them. And often we forget that. We're, we pay a lot of attention to what's been wounded in ourselves. But we also need to remember that other people, um, you know, the mistake we make is assigning a particular value to a person. She is X or Y, he is A or Z. Uh, and it's not true. Everybody is their own scrambled alphabet. And the excitement in any friendship or any relationship is beginning to understand uh, it's like code breaking. You know, it's like what's the particular jumble of letters that constitute this person's flexible code? The other thing is a person is never just one thing and never static. So the, you know, the code, let's say, of another person is always changing. So uh, I find that incredibly exciting. 
I mean, I find that really what makes being a person in the world uh, really, you know, wonderful and fun. And uh, I, I don't, I just don't take things uh, personally. If somebody is upset about something, or somebody, I mean, I have a sense that, uh, or if somebody's acted or behaved badly in a way. They have to do it more than once for me to take it personally. And, uh, you know, I just give people a lot of latitude. Yeah. I think as, a, as an artist and as a writer, once you begin to close down to the world, it may make things simpler uh, emotionally, simpler even psychologically. But I think that it means your work also will be increasingly two-dimensional. Yeah. And so I, uh, I think you look, I'll just tell you, the most famous uh, poets, musicians, uh, scientists, actually, I've known a couple Nobel Prize winners, um, it doesn't matter what it is. Those people have an extraordinary curiosity about the world, yeah. a really exceptional openness, um, and, you know, the kind of myth of the, the narrow, uh, really, you know, laser-like focused scientist or artist who only does their one thing and therefore they're a genius at that one thing. It hasn't been true in my experience that the people who are really at the top of what they do, uh, they're funny, you know, they're just, you know, they love, <coughs> you know, language play, they love to tell jokes. Uh, they're, they're often, they, uh, many of them, doesn't matter what it is, cuts across every discipline. Many of them have music in their background. Many of them have been musicians. A disproportionate number of the poets I know who are really successful poets have music in their background. I mean, I think that's, you can understand that, but I've noticed that in the, you know, the prose writers, the painters, that music seems to carry a kind of, uh, there's a kind of beauty of movement in the imagination that can then travel into other specific disciplines as well. I, can, I mean, I'm sure someone has talked about this far more eloquently and specifically than I am. <laughs> I, but can, it's I just can add so that asterisk on everything that yeah. I say. <laughs> That's right. Sometimes I feel like one big asterisk. <laughs> um, so I just, you know, Mackin, it's, um, and it's hard. I mean, everything in a, in a daily way is kind of asking a person to close down. Yeah. And I think that uh, once you get into the habit of just sort of saying, no, I, you know, it is not either or with me. It is, yes, just more. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, yeah. There's so many great things you said. I'm just trying to process them. 
Well, I, I think that, you know, just, I think the only way that one sort of moves along in the world is you have to invent the artist, the writer, the songwriter, the painter, the person who you are <clears throat> by taking pieces and learning from the people who you admire and you meet along the way. Yeah. And so that's why a kind of mentorship and a kind of sense of, you know, you run into people and you think, wow, I, you know, I want some of that. I don't know what the hell it is, but I want some of that. How does that person do this in the world? Yeah. And uh, it's exciting. And it's exciting, and it, you know, for me, the excitement is it never stops. And right. I mean, as you know, uh, I'm always looking, and I feel I've learned as much from my students and the, you know, the young writers, the young musicians uh, who I'm lucky enough to run into. Uh, as I have from you know the really all the famous prize winners I know, it doesn't. It's you know it may sound odd, but if you think about it, it's not because you just need to be open to what you don't know or what you've never seen before, and uh, and for me, it's the energy of being willing to fail and yeah. the energy of being you know a lot of the. You know, once sometimes when people get to a certain level of accomplishment, uh, then they begin to be afraid to fail. And once that enters in, they're dead. That's it. Their work is over. Yeah. And what I love about being around young artists of every kind is the energy and the recklessness and the refusal to accept when they're told, no, you can't do that for whatever reason. And that's, you know, for me, that helps, uh, helps me stay close to the kind of energy that I want. Yeah. It's always shocking to me, like, how frightening writing is every single time, mm -hmm. you know? And, yeah. and I uh, certainly, like, after having written like a such a small amount of songs but you write some songs that you feel like really express how you were feeling at the time and then for me it becomes part of my ego like oh I'm this open guy <laughs> you know that's good at articulating things yeah. and then I'm sitting there in front of a blank piece of paper like assuming that I'm gonna have some more skill or something but just yeah. as scared shitless <laughs> yeah. as I've yeah. ever been you yeah. know yeah it doesn't change every <laughs> every blank piece of paper secretly says you suck <laughs> and it's just like um, and it's like where, where did I get this ream of paper that said you suck yeah. um, but in fact you know I think everybody at some point and if this hasn't happened yet, you know, just consider yourself lucky and some form of it will happen. Where you come to a point, you've done what you, you know, love doing for X number of years, and suddenly you uh, start coming up empty. But every time. 
And so a lot of my friends have gone through this. I've gone through this a couple of times where you, you, know, you can't write. I mean, you can't do anything. And you think, am I never going to do this again? Am I never going to be able to you know, write a song, write a poem, write a line? And once you go through that for maybe whatever it is, a year, maybe even a year and a half, and then you start in again, and you're back doing it, and you're in the rhythm of it again, then you're okay. You have to know that you can go through those periods and come out the other side. And once you come out the other side once, then you're okay. Because yeah. um, then you have that experience. And, you know, people quit doing what they love for lots of reasons. Um, but a lot of times it's reasons that don't have to do with the reasons they began doing something they loved. And right. I think that whenever you have a hard time, you just try to reconnect with the reasons uh, that's why a lot of writers when they're having sort of periods where they're not working they go back and they read those first few poets or stories writers and listen to the songs that first really uh, gave them a sense of what that freedom would be like to do it themselves yeah. and try to reconnect with that and uh, it usually works so. And that's what I always suggest if somebody says to me there on that little island in the middle of silence. Right. When you're doing what you're doing now and putting a mm -hmm. book together of not only new poems, but things like you said before we started recording, mm -hmm. like things from uh, 40 years ago. Yeah. I mean, how do you sequence that or, or make it make sense together mm -hmm. if all those different voices? Well, it, it's interesting. Um, I was describing kinds of poems that I wrote sort of in between books because there are books of those as well right. <clears throat> and there are two books of what we would call uncollected poems uncollected from the other books I didn't include any of those even though some of those are poems that a lot of friends you know it's their favorite poems are one of those poems rather than the others yeah. but uh, and I also didn't include in this next book I have two books that are basically uh, book-length sequences. And one is in 45 parts, and it's called The Face and the Vela in Verse. And that's the book I used to write a libretto for the opera that Don Crockett wrote, and that was really a great experience for me. But those poems, even though there are sections that could stand alone, I didn't include any of those. And I've got a book called Prism that was a book I did with a friend who's a photographer. And it, all the poems have a particular color in their title or sort of as the object of the poem. And they're all basically sonnet length. So I think of that as a book that's basically a long sonnet sequence. So I decided from the beginning I wouldn't um, use any of those in the selected part of this new and selected book. The book's called The Last Troubadour. And there's a poem with that as the title in the new poems. 
But what I did do is um, there are 50 poems in the selected section. And those 50 poems uh, come from 40 years of writing. And so that's basically uh, 1.25 poems a year that I've kept. <laughs> and so I thought, that's a, you know, I write, I don't know, you know, 60 to 100 a year, keep one and 1.25, and that's pretty reasonable selection. Um, but what's interesting, Mackin, is that in the book, they are um, chronological according to the order of the books that they were in. And okay. uh, even though I've always felt with each book I've tried to do something new and not what I've done before, what I like is that you can tell that they share a particular kind of perspective and voice right. and a particular attitude about language. So that, that was fun. That was fun for me. That's awesome. Yeah. It's always, uh, I mean, I certainly, like, you know, I've only been here for not, not too long, but... Um, here is in the, in world. the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just—I don't know anything. Yeah. I'm, I'm 20 years old, but um, <laughs> I have been able to notice in my own life whenever I'm thinking like, "Gee, I've changed so much, and I've developed so much, and look at all the new yeah. ideas and thoughts and opinions I have now, and and my new personality and whatever." And then I'll see like a home movie of me when I'm like four or five, or I'll remember a story of you know, or and I'll run into an old friend and we'll be talking about when we were 10, and I'm just like. Jesus Christ, I'm the same person helplessly that I've always been, you know? <laughs> I, you know, I, that's why it's so important to be able to change your mask occasionally because uh, it's really true. I mean, there, <clears throat> there are ways in which we are who we are. Yeah. But, um, but I think that's the real value. I mean, I have to say, for me, it's always been the real value of writing because... Um, there I get to be, or at least I think I get to be, or I pretend I get to be somebody else. And yeah. I write in a lot of different voices. I write a lot of dramatic mm -hmm. monologues self-consciously in the voice of other people. Yeah. And I like, I like that. I like the ability to get, you know, get outside myself and right. get away from myself. You know? Having like your your art and your work reach mm -hmm. other people is something that is really fascinating to me particularly yeah. with my songwriting right now because and something we explored in your class is just how sometimes going like really deep inward is is the best way towards like anything absolutely. universal you know that's and, absolutely uh, the trick yeah but it's there's some distinction there that i haven't been able to figure out mm -hmm. Where at what point is it just indulgent? Is it just personal? You know, if you go to like a bad open mic or something, mm -hmm. you hear someone singing about a breakup and you just, you know, you wince and you're yeah. like, I don't want it. But then you hear, you know, someone talk about something that's so clearly personal, but it, yeah. it, it's, it transcends, you know? And I was just wondering if you had any insight well, on like I, what that yeah, difference is. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's the difference is in the one case, something, someone is talking about something from the outside. In other words, they're making judgments 
about whether it's a breakup or they're, in other words, they're um, offering you a kind of summary of their feelings. Yeah. And in, you know, the reason why, you know, you can listen to Carol King or James Taylor uh, sing about their experience or Joni Mitchell to also sing about James Taylor is that they're all compelling because those songs are written with very specific details. They're, they're not offering a summation. They're not saying, you know, and then the world collapsed around me. And the, it's never a generality. It's always a detail that allows you to share the experience. Great art allows you to step into that person's world right. and be that person. In bad art, you are always left outside of that world being told about it. Yeah. It's like, and I think the example I used in class, it's like if you go to a movie and the screen would be empty and the only thing there would be the voiceover, the person yeah. telling you, oh, and then that's, you know. But you don't get to experience it yourself. I think in great art, you can, you, the person, the writer, it doesn't matter what it is, the painter allows you to share their sensibility. What maybe what I'm saying is that the craft of doing whatever we do is honing our own sensibility in a way that allows an audience to share it and yeah. to share the emotion themselves, come to the emotion themselves, and not simply be told, uh, oh, well, she break my, broke my heart, I feel like shit. You know? yeah. That you have to be able to break the audience's heart and allow them to feel like shit. You don't mm -hmm. have to tell them at all. If you can do that, then you don't have to tell them. Yeah. <laughs> when did you decide, or was it a decision at all, like? to pursue a life of, of poetry? And, and was that difficult to convince people around you of? Uh, always. I mean, I, th I think that everyone are trying to, uh, everyone's trying to protect you from uh, what they are afraid is going to be a really a hard road, a hard struggle, uh, something, any, you know, artistic path is one of relative solitude and which is why one's friends are so important whatever you know thing it is I and mean, it's why painters hang out together it's why musicians hang out together writers hang out together is that what we do is basically solitary yeah. and so you know we need to have a sense of community that we can make ourselves um, and it's you know, especially one's family, I think, you know, I mean, everyone probably, you know, who, certainly everyone in your cohort and everyone probably in the singer-songwriter section of things, all of my young graduate students who are really making the leap to making a life of doing this, um, you know, it's not like nobody's been told how hard it's going to be. It's not like 
you know, others haven't tried to discourage you in your own best interest. I mean, we all have to go through that. Again, it doesn't make them bad people. It doesn't make them, uh, you know, resistant to understanding one's own future, one's own talent, anything like that at all. It's just that it's really natural for other people to hold fears for people they care deeply about. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think all that one can do, the only thing I could do was just say, you know what, I, um, I understand your concern, you know, but uh, I'm, I'm willing to sort of take those chances. I don't know what's there. I mean, you don't know for a long time. I mean, you're kind of like stumbling around in the dark of your own artistic pursuits you know yeah. you don't know whether you're gonna be successful not successful you don't know whether you're any good really up to a certain point and um, but you've got to trust in the fact that you're doing something you actually love doing and yeah. you look around the world and you see how very very few people actually do something they love and actually are doing something that makes them happy doing it. And you think, well, <clears throat> you know, I, I mean, I, my friends who were blues musicians, you know, back in the day when I was doing more music and, you know, when I was in my early 20s and, you know, there are these guys who had been in bands since they were, you know, 13, 14, and one guy, uh, you know, was this amazing blues piano player. And he was slightly older than the other guys in the band, and he'd been around a long time. And he said, you know, the band is a band which had been really pretty successful in Northern California in the Bay Area. They lived in Santa Rosa at the time. Um, they had decided that they were going to give it one more year as a band and then maybe do different things. And they'd been together a long time, maybe seven years. And I said, well, what will you do to this one guy? And he said, <clears throat> you know, I'll, I'll still be playing piano somewhere. He said, I'm going to die in front of a keyboard. He said, for good or ill is what I do. That's who I am. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. And I mean, he had uh, he had made that decision. He just said, you know, I, this is who I am. I mean, if I'm not playing with this band, uh, I'll be playing with another band. And if I'm not playing with another band, you know, I'll be at a piano bar in Tahoe. I mean, he was just like, this is what I do. This is what I love. And it was, um, you know, it sounds like it's something very melodramatic. But in fact, he was just very matter of fact. You know, he's just, uh, you know, nothing makes me happy like this. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. So, yeah. Did you ever reach a point where you felt like you could relax, like it all wasn't going to be taken away from you and you could enjoy, like... Oh, I'm going to be doing this for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
actually. I mean, there there did come a point when I thought, um, I don't care if it's taken away. I mean, I think that's the point one has to come to. That if, you know, I mean, it's nice, it, it's nice to have books and it's nice to, you know, have people like what you do, but I think that you do have to come to that moment, and it, I'm not saying this is any fun, but I think one does at some point come to a moment, and you go, wow, I you know, maybe this isn't going to last. Maybe, you know, everybody I know who has been doing whatever their thing is for any amount of time has gone through these periods. Yeah. Some of them, some of my friends have been in such dark places. Writers, uh, fiction writers, poets, screenwriters, uh, musicians, some really notable musicians. Um, people go into this place where they don't know if they're going to come out. And so some of it's personal, but some of it also has to do with the work they're doing. You know, actors uh, amaze me because actors have to learn how to go long periods of time, especially once they become kind of successful, long periods of time not knowing when they're going to work next. And they have to, I mean, it may be the hardest thing of all to be. Um, and that's why some actors... Uh, who are, think of themselves as movie or TV actors, they're always doing stage work. They're always doing little theater stuff. They're always acting. They're not really taking time off between things uh, because it's just too debilitating. But I think that it's something that everybody goes through at some point. You, you know, it's just going to be part of the landscape. You know, you've got, yeah. you've got those valleys and you just... Um, you've got to believe there's another side to that valley, you know. Yeah. And there is. Just speaking about just going through artistic insecure periods, <clears throat> another one that I find myself mm -hmm. in a lot is just, is this worth anything? Is this mm -hmm. narcissistic or vain or right. something just to pursue, yeah. like, arts when there's people dying? And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, and people, yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, you know, different times historically and politically what you see is people using their art of any kind um, for a social purpose and that's every person's individual choice I mean I have friends uh, who are extremely political in their work and I have friends who are really m much more, uh, they may be political in their lives, but less so overtly in their work. Mm -hmm. This is a deeply individual decision. But I think what you find is that, you know, you look at, you look at the, say, from my perspective, I look at the 60s, and I look at how many of the people I admired really brought their own artistic concerns uh, really to s speak about social justice. Mm -hmm. And we're at a time right now where that's happening again. I mean, I think it 
always happens. Uh, some people get tired, some people get scared, some people get, you know, just too, they turn away and they need to take care of themselves for a while. Yeah. I mean, it's very, very hard to be a public person in that highly political way because you're seen as a spokesperson uh, in, a, in a way that can be exhausting. I mean, I have a lot of friends who have been in that position and have periodically had to take a year or two out and just go back and be with their families and sort of, you know, rejuvenate and remember who they were individually. Yeah. Uh, it's a very complicated question, Mac. And the, qu the question you began with, which is, does art matter? Yeah. I believe absolutely. I believe without question. I believe it deep in the marrow of my bones. I've had to think a lot about it for a really long time. Mm -hmm. But the fact that I think it matters and I believe in what art can do and the function and the purpose of art in a society and a culture is irrelevant. It's something that you have to believe. You have to find your own way mm. to understand the place it has in your own life. Yeah. I guess it's just easy to get bummed out and just like, oh, all of this is a distraction or something or I don't know, because I, you know, I'm always listening to records, and it, I, I mm -hmm. like to think that it's making me a better person and, and just trying to experience beauty and, and humanity. Like, and, and I, you know, I, I certainly don't look down upon, like, Jeff Tweedy or <laughs> any of my, you know, yeah, any of exactly. my favorite artists for yeah. trying to express... Something and no, and I think what we admire is, um, you know, everybody. You know, and Jeff's a great example. I mean, everybody has had their own individual struggle. Yeah. And <clears throat> one does not, you know, one size does not fit all. And you look at the people you admire doing what you love, and then you begin to find out more about them. It's why it's really fun to read biographies of different artists. Mm. Sometimes you realize, you know, you find out things that you wish you didn't know in the long run. Yeah. But at the same time, you realize that finally nobody's really had it easy. I mean, the infinite looks like somebody's been a golden girl or a golden boy. It's probably, you know, just the PR machine. And everybody's had their struggles. Everybody's had their stuff. And it's not, you know, and it's instructive if only in that then you can say, oh, well, I, you know, I guess I can figure it out, too, if they figured it out. And I think that, you know, does uh, a book of poems, you can say, does a book of poems matter in the big scale of things? And then you hear stories about people in sort of all different parts of any culture and part of the world where almost accidentally, providentially, they'll come upon a book of poems by, you know, poet X or Y, often a poet translated from another language. 
so let's say a poet not even from their culture but there'll be something in that poem that speaks to them and speaks to them so powerfully that in a period of real you know discouragement even despair they find a reason to sort of look beyond that moment I mean, yeah. you, you already know how many times that you know of this happening in terms of songs. I mean, people you know who, like, said, you know, oh, wow, I was just really, you know, to, you know, let's say under the bridge. And, uh, but then something happened with a song, or I saw this movie, and I sort of was able to get a second wind about things. It's, you know, you can always say, it doesn't matter. X doesn't matter, or Y doesn't matter. And, yeah, I mean, you can probably make a really good case for why X or Y really doesn't matter. And you can probably, in the end, say, well, what the hell, none of it really matters. But finally, you have to decide what is it that matters to you. And you can't let anybody else decide that for you. And really, the struggle to decide what matters, what you care about, that defines who you are. That's, that says who you are, what you love, what you value in the world, in art, in other people. That's who you really are. So, uh, you know, what else is up? <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, it's, it's something oh. that, um, you know, if you wonder, you know, what, what matters to people, when there's a sort of shocking public death, and let's just use music as an example, um, with the deaths of first David Bowie and then Prince, it really was remarkable for me uh, to see the power of what people experienced and felt yeah. with those deaths. And it's because people, you know, cuts across class, it cut across, um, you know, any, you know, any calibration that was racial, geographic, you know, I mean, it's it was global, where people reacted because they felt something deeply particular that was specific to these artists had gone out of the world yeah. and you know it would be there in their music and their recordings but it was extinguished in terms of what might be possible in the future and we count on artists to go with us into the future and help us uh, understand it and make sense of it art has always been Every significant piece of art 
is avant-garde in that it's out in front of the culture. And it helps us understand the time we live in, the culture we live in, the place we live in. Um, and what we, uh, it also, I mean, think how there's certain records or certain, you know, movies, and we talk of them as having captured the zeitgeist of a particular time. Yeah. But in fact, they're, they're able to hold up a mirror in which we recognize our own experience in the spirit of that time. And so that's what's really, I think, valuable. I think what artists do is that if you know we get any good at what we do, we help other people recognize themselves in whatever we can bring to the song or the poem. Yeah. And uh, in that way, we're just going right back to what something you said earlier. As you know, doing what we do, we need to be individual and personal and uh, be able to provide the details of our experience so that other people can see reflected in that their own experience and see themselves. Uh, and for me, you know, that's the power of it. It's why I go to other poets, other fiction writers and yeah. songwriters. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's why I keep doing it. I keep doing it to discover what else do I have to say. I don't yeah. know. If I knew what I had to say, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> quite honestly, I, you know, I just I'm curious. What else do I have to say? Maybe that's a good place to stop, because now I don't know what else I have to say. <laughs> I appreciate you uh, taking some of these wackier, you know, big picture questions. Yeah. And answering them with yeah. heart and, and whatnot. Yeah, I just always work in cinema scope. <laughs> Thanks a lot, David. Thank you, Mackin. This has been fun. Appreciate it. Can I get you possibly to read something of yours? Oh, God. Um, Is that legal? Yes, let me, yeah. Let me see if I can can find something here. Yeah. Oh, thanks so much. So let me read a poem. Um, It's a poem called Hungry Ghost. And Hungry Ghost is a kind of Buddhist principle, but I won't rehearse that for you. It's just, it pretty much is what it sounds like. Hungry Ghost. When I came to see you, it hurt me how thin you had become in the months of addiction and disease. And although your particular abyss was a man and not a drug, the degradation was the same. The same wasting of the flesh, the same tapped out well emptied of the least leaf of emotion, the same frozen rage. When I came to your hotel room, you were sitting in a hard chair just by the window, half slumped 
and distracted, looking out at the persistent rain, then silently back at me. Your ghost, your own ghost, had already come. She sat by you at the small table, and she was so hungry. At one point, she reached over, reached right inside you, and slowly twisted off a moist wafer of your heart. She put it in her mouth and let it sit a moment on her tongue, her lips parting in a way both petulant and suggestive. It was clear she would eat all of you. I walked into the bathroom, and at the dulled zinc sink, I rinsed one by one the fat spring strawberries I'd brought you from the ranch. I put them in the white ceramic bowl I'd carried from our kitchen, and without a word, simply placed it on the table just beside your ghost. She stared at me, and then only at the fleshy rubies awaiting her, and ate until only a few rivulets of blood traced the bottom of the bowl, and the green crowns she'd torn from their bodies lay scattered where they had fallen at her feet. At last, she seemed sated, placated, or even bored. She barely looked over as I wrapped you in your overcoat. You glanced at her and she at you, the rain still steady at the pain. And then I realized you could not stand alone. And so I lifted you up to take you home. Thanks. Thank You're you. welcome. Appreciate it. Thanks again, Mac. Of course.